Well, I've often said, if only y'all were that excited. But then your answer would be, but they're leaving and we have to stay. Well, take your Bible, if you will, and turn to Acts chapter 20. And if you have been with us on Sunday morning, by the way, thank you, Ashton, for uh, filling in last Sunday. And uh, good to be back with you this morning. But we've been going through the book of Acts on Sunday morning. And I want to ask you a question before we get started this morning. Uh, How many of you were members of Satilla Baptist Church and were part of this church back in 1974? How many of you were attending this church back in 1974? I see see about, looks like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. We got, you know, counting up here. Uh, I I count seven. Maybe, maybe I missed one or two, so let's just say there were ten people raised their hand. Well, there's more than ten people here. All right, so there's been a lot of changes uh, at this church in the last 44 years. Now, those of you that didn't raise your hand, well, some of you were still with the angels, you know, or wherever you were before you were born. Some of you weren't born yet, okay? But those of you that were alive 44 years ago and you were old enough to remember, I want you to think back to where you were attending church in 1974, wherever that was, if you were alive. I want you to think about that church, and now I want you to fast forward to today, if I'm assuming that church is still uh, in existence, and think about that church. Is it any different than it was in 1974? I'm, I'm sure I may not get a unanimous agreement on anything else, but I bet you I get a unanimous agreement on that, that the place you attended church in 1974, certainly including this place, is different than it was 44 years ago. Well, what we're going to do this morning, we're in the book of Acts, but we're going to take the church at Ephesus. Now remember, Sunday before last, we were in Acts chapter 20, and Paul said his goodbyes to the church at Ephesus. And we're going to take that church, that church in Ephesus, And we're going to look a 44, approximately 44 years, as best as Bible scholars can determine dates from the Bible. We're going to look at the church at Ephesus over a 44-year span. We're going to start in Acts chapter 19, and we're going to end up in Revelation chapter 2. Now, whether you know it or not, the church at Ephesus is one of the primary churches in the New Testament. There's a lot about Ephesus in the New Testament. We might call it, we could perhaps say it was one of the primary, one of the first churches in the first and second century. So let's start in Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter, actually go back to Acts chapter 18. And, uh, you know, we we finished up in Acts chapter 20, but we're going to kind of back up and, and look at a couple of things about the church at Ephesus. Now, God intends for us to change. Both as individuals, we should grow. The Bible says to grow in the grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. As a church, we should grow. So change can be good, but change is not necessarily good. Can I get an amen from anybody over the age of 50? That change is not necessarily good. Yeah, you've looked in the mirror lately or tried to get up and, and, and do some work and, and something hurts that you didn't know you had before you reached the age of 50. So change is not necessarily good in a physical sense. It's not necessarily good in a spiritual sense as well. 
And we're going to take a look at the church at Ephesus from its beginning. And when did it begin? In Acts chapter 18, there in verse number 18, we find when the church at Ephesus was founded. It says, So Paul remained a good while, and he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria. And Priscilla and Aquila were with him, and he had his hair cut off at Citria, for he had taken a vow. And he came to Ephesus and left them there, but he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay a little longer with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep the coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing, and he sailed from Ephesus. Now that's Paul's second missionary journey in the book of Acts. And Bible scholars tell us the date is probably around A.D. 52. And we find here that Paul has Priscilla and Aquila and they stop in Ephesus and they begin to preach the gospel. So the church is planted in the year A.D. 52 approximately. That's the beginning of the church at Ephesus. Well, we go over to Acts chapter 19. We go one chapter over. And you look there in verse number 1, it says, It happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. So there we find uh, on Paul's third missionary journey there, he's there, he is there preaching, and there he stops in Ephesus. This is probably about A.D. 54, about two years later, after the, Paul's first visit to Ephesus, Paul stops back by Ephesus again. And you know, I preached on this whole chapter really a couple of weeks ago, chapter or three about three weeks ago, chapter 19. And on that second visit, two years after the church was founded, Paul ends up staying at Ephesus for three years. For three whole years, Paul pastors that church. He talks to them first of all about the importance of the Holy Spirit and we found that there were unusual miracles that occurred at the hand of Paul. We know that here in this church there was a great fervor. There was a great revival going on. There was great repentance and we found that in in verse 18. It says that many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. And many, now let me tell you, you know revival has struck when people start confessing their sins. Now, as long as folks are hiding their sins, revival hadn't hit. But Ephesus was experiencing a true revival because people were coming and they were publicly confessing their sins. And the Bible says not only that, their pocketbook. You know, I heard someone say a long time ago, if you want to find out what's important to somebody, check two books is all you need. Check two books, their pocketbook and their calendar, their date book, their date book and their pocketbook. What do they spend their money on and what do they spend their time on? Forget what they tell you is important. That doesn't matter. Just check their pocketbook and their date book. What they spend their money and their time on is what they love. And so here we have in Ephesus, there's a great revival going on. The people are coming together. And remember, books were very expensive 2,000 years ago. A book was a treasure. And what do we find? I preached on this, just want to touch on it briefly a couple of weeks ago. Many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. The city of Ephesus was a place given over just as most places were 2,000 years ago over to paganism and, 
and uh, sorcery and every type of spiritual debauchery that you can imagine. And as people were coming to the light of the gospel, they turned from that darkness and they were willing to take something very expensive that they invested a lot of their time and their money into and basically throw it away. Say, you know, this is darkness. These books represent evil, and I'm willing to totally surrender and turn away from them. So Ephesus began, that church at Ephesus, remember it's only about two years old at this point, and it's going through a great revival. The, The Word of God is moving mightily in the midst of this church. Well, as a matter of fact, the church was growing so mightily. Remember in Acts chapter 19 what happened? As a church grows, remember... You know, we've had a lot about politics and, and we've got a few elected officials in our church. And I'll have to confess, you know, I, I, I love to look at government and, yes, I'll say that dirty word, politics. You, you know, I mean, that's very interesting to me. I, I, I like to study it. But let me tell you, Christianity is not a political movement. The church is not a political organization. But here's what happens. Here's what happened in Ephesus. When the church begins to truly be filled with the Spirit of God, what does it do? It affects and changes individual people's lives. And when individual people's lives are changed, what happens? Communities are changed. And society is changed. Because all of a sudden, people are changed. They become different. And that's what happened in Ephesus. People were worshiping little golden idols and and little shrines. And what happened? They came to the knowledge of Christ. They said, you know, I don't need this anymore. And there was a guy named Demetrius. He was making those little silver idols. He and a whole, that was a big business in Ephesus. And, and what happened to society? People stopped buying, or, or the Christians. The Christians stopped buying those items. And, uh, you know, his sales went way down. Remember I preached the message when the good news is bad news? It was good news to the people who came to Christ, but to Demetrius... And his fellow silversmiths, it was bad news. And so there's a wonderful picture there of how God intends for the church to change society. The church is not a political organization or a political movement, but what the church does, the church, the preaching of the gospel and the the reception of the gospel changes people's lives. And when people's lives are changed, communities and societies and governments and nations are changed for the better. And so that's what has happened in Ephesus, but everybody's not going to be happy when that happens. And so we see there was a great riot that broke out there in Ephesus. Again, we're on, this church is only two, three years old at this time, maybe four at the most. And so Paul there in, in uh, Acts chapter 20, verse 1, he departs Ephesus. says that when the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. So... Here we have, Paul spent three years there. We got a new church, the church at Ephesus, founded about A.D. 52. Paul pastored it for about three years. We're all the way up to about A.D. 56. It's about four years old. Paul continues on his journey. But there in Acts chapter 20, what happens? Paul wants to get back to Jerusalem uh, for Pentecost. And as he is trying to make his way back there, he decides, you know, I I think I'm going to stop by a little place called Miletus. He says, but I want to speak to the Ephesian elders. And you know, I preached, uh, we don't have time to go into it. I'm not going to go into all the things that Paul shared with them in Acts chapter 20. But Paul met with the leaders of the church at Ephesus. 
We're now about AD 57, so about five years into the, into the age, of, into the life of this church. And the church has leaders. So the church leaders come together there in Acts chapter 20. And, you know, Paul goes through, and I shared that, that if you are in any type of ministry, what Paul says to the Ephesian elders is a wonderful blueprint for how we should conduct ourselves in ministry. And he mentions about his consistent testimony in chapter 8 and verse 18. He talks about the witness of suffering in verse 19. He talks about preaching the full gospel in verse 20. He speaks in verse 21 about preaching to everybody, not leaving anybody out, both the Jews and the Greeks. In verse 21, he talks about the simple message that he preached. And in verse 25, he reminds them that nothing lasts forever. This too will pass, that he will not be with them any longer. Verse 26 and 28, he's reminded of the responsibility uh, of telling others that he is a watchman, if you will, on the wall. In verse 28, uh, we're reminded that the church belongs to God, that God purchased it with his blood. It doesn't belong to any pastor or any leader or any individual. And then verse 29, very important. I do want to read this in light of what's going to happen to the church at Ephesus. In verse 29, he says this. He says, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch... And remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So here this wonderful church where a great revival had taken place, Paul warns them that, listen, no church is above wolves. Don't think that you're so spiritual that you're not going to have anyone try to tear down what God has built up. And so be aware of that and be on watch for those wolves. And then he commends them to God in verse 32, and he reminds them of the example he set to be generous uh, in verse 33 through 35. And then they pray together in verse 36 and 38. So now, that's the first four to five years of the church at Ephesus. Can you imagine having the Apostle Paul as your pastor for three of those first five years? What a wonderful foundation this church has laid for it. Well... Remember, Paul told him he was on his way to Jerusalem. If you remember from Scripture, he said that he didn't know what awaited him, but the Holy Spirit testified in every city that tribulation and trials awaited him. Well, he, he was exactly right. The Holy Spirit was right. You go back to the book of Acts, and we're going to be going through it in the next few weeks. But he makes it to Jerusalem. What happens to him in Jerusalem? He is arrested he is accosted by the Jews there in Jerusalem. The Romans come in and, and take him before he's murdered, basically, by the Jewish mob. And they put him on trial. And Paul believes that things are not going well at his trial. And he does what every Roman citizen has a right to do. He appeals to Caesar. He said, I appeal to Caesar. Well, the authorities in Jerusalem are very glad to get rid of him because he is a problem. And they say, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you will go. And you know the story, he's put on a ship, and they make, start making their way to Rome. What happens? The shipwreck, remember the ship is, is, uh, falls upon the rocks, and they land on the island, and, and they go through all kind of things. Finally, they, they get on another ship. They finally make it to Rome, and the book of Acts ends with Paul under house arrest in Rome. 
And that's when the book of Acts ends. But what does Paul do there? While he's in his first imprisonment in Rome, Paul writes four letters that we call the prison letters, the prison epistles, and that's Ephesians and and Philippians and Colossians and Philemon. He writes the letter of Ephesians. And the letter to the, to the Ephesians is to who? It's to the church at Ephesus. The church that he pastored for three years. The church that by this time, about A.D. 60, we know is when Paul was in prison from A.D. 60 to A.D. 62. So now the church is eight years old. The church at Ephesus has been in existence for eight years. And Paul writes the wonderful letter, the book of Ephesians. So I'm just going to read a quote to you, a couple of passages from the book of Ephesians, because I want you to understand the background. Remember, here's a church that's been in existence eight years, made up primarily of Gentiles, non-Jews, and Paul was a pastor there for three years. He's now in prison in Rome. He's met with the elders on the island of of, of Miletus before he left, and, and you could tell by the instructions that he gave those elders, that he was very concerned about the church. He loved the church. He wanted the church to do well. And so now, it's A.D. 60. It's about three years after he met with those elders and he's sitting in a prison or under house arrest in Rome. And he says, boy, I wonder how they're doing in Ephesus. No doubt he probably had received some letters from them and knew a little bit about what was going on. But he he pins a letter. He says, I want to write to that church that I love so well, that church at Ephesus, and I want to give them some instruction. And I want you to, in light of that, I want to read to you in in chapter 1, verse 15, a prayer that Paul makes for the church at Ephesus. I, I shared with some of you on Wednesday night, this is a wonderful prayer. A prayer that we can pray for our loved ones, a prayer that we can pray for anybody. And Paul prays this prayer For the church at Ephesus, in Acts chapter 1, verse 15, he says, Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I do not cease. Let me stop there. It's been about three years since Paul has spoken to the leaders. It's been about four years since Paul was in Ephesus. And there's some new people in the church. Remember, this is a growing church. Now, Paul knew some of the original people, but there were only... What, ten people who raised their hand? There's a new crop of people here. We're talking 44 years later. Well, even over a, a four to five year period, there were new people in the church at Ephesus. So some of these people Paul had never met. But he says, I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and after your love for all, and your love for all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His mighty power which He raised in Christ, or worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead, and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places." far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now that's a wonderful beginning, a prayer that Paul makes. He focuses on the greatness of Christ. 
But he goes into now talking about the Ephesians. And, and listen to this. And keep in mind who Paul is writing to. People, many people he knew that he had ministered among. People who used to be, who used to worship in the temple of Diana of the Ephesians, who used to practice black art and magic, who used to have their faith in something that was not true and something that was not real. He, he says this word to them, chapter 2, verse 1. And you He made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What a wonderful prayer. So much beautiful theology in that prayer. So much that we should learn and listen just as Paul expected the Ephesians to learn. But he prays again for them in this same book in chapter 3. And in verse number 14, he speaks about another prayer. He says, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ that passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Think about Paul here in this letter to this Ephesian church. You know, we're looking at a, at a 44 span, 44 year span of time in the life of this church. We're about eight years into it. Eight to ten years into it, Paul is writing this beautiful letter to these Ephesian believers. He's telling them everything that they have in Christ. Everything that Christ has done for them. Matter of fact, if you take this letter of Ephesians and you break it down, you'll see that the first three chapters, Paul mainly talks about doctrine and theology, who Jesus is, who they are in Christ, what God did for them in the Spirit. And then in chapter 4... 5 and 6, the last three chapters in the letter that he wrote to the church at Ephesus, he moves from a foundation of who they are in Christ, what Jesus did for them when He saved them, to how they should live out their new life in the world. Practical application. I found a new theologian that I've quoted a couple of times. Here, uh, Robert Taylor is his name. He's a former convict from Tennessee. And I'll tell you, I'm, I'm, you may have seen it on Facebook. I shared that. 
video, but one of his, uh, how he ended his little impromptu sermon that he gave was, if you still are what you were, then you ain't. That's a good summary of the last three chapters of the book of Ephesus. Paul told them what they should be, what God had did for them in Christ, and in chapters 4, 5, and 6, he basically said, now listen, if you really are a follower of Christ, this is how you're going to act. This is how you should be treating your wife. This is how you should be treating your husband. This is how you should be conducting yourself toward your parents. If you're a child, this is what type of employee you should be. This is what type of employer you should be. This is the type of person you should be in the church. So in the book of Ephesus, those last three chapters, he tells them how they're to live. And you look there in chapter 4, verse 1. One of the first things he speaks about is unity. Unity and love. He says this is one of the ways they can work out their salvation, live out their salvation, what God has done for them. Chapter 4, verse 1. He says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. He just spent three chapters telling them who they were. The calling they had. You've been seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. You've been purchased by the blood of Christ. And now in these last three chapters, he's saying, now listen, this is who you are. Walk worthy of your vocation. You know, people are concerned about reputation. Just this week, I I saw several news articles where someone had, some employee had been, you think about all the video that's going on. I'm scared to walk outside, to be honest with you. I'm scared to go uptown. I mean... Not really, but, but you think about somebody's probably videoing you. If somebody's not videoing you, there's a security camera somewhere as you walk in Walmart. Think about that next time you are walking into Walmart and you think nobody's looking, you want to pick your nose. You're on camera. <laughs> or worse, you're on camera. Somebody's got you. Some security guard's laughing at you in the back room. Look at that joker. Look at that lady. I mean, you're on camera, but I saw just this week where where several people were terminated from their job. Why? Because they did something on social media or or they videoed themselves or somebody else videoed and they said something, they did something that the people they work for said, Woo, we we don't want that person associated with us. We don't want that person with our name and say, I work for so and so, you're terminated. Well, in a way, that's what Paul is saying to these Ephesian believers. Listen, you've got the name of Christ blazoned across your forehead. You're a follower of Christ. Walk worthy of the calling that you have. You are His representative on this earth. He says, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. So he pleads for unity and for love. And then you go over to chapter 5. Remember, we're talking about the Ephesian church. Can you imagine all the wonderful teaching that the people in this church have received? They heard Paul face to face for three years. Now he's writing them this wonderful letter that's going to be read to them. And he's given them all this wonderful instruction. And chapter 5, verse 15, again, he's pleading for purity here. He says... 
Let me find it. Chapter 5, verse 15. See then that you walk wisely or circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. And then you go on in chapters 5 and 6, he talks about husbands and wives and bondservants and masters. And then he talks in chapter, chapter 6, verse 10, he ends up with a call to arms. Remember, when he left the Ephesian church, one of the things he did before he left He warned them of the danger to come. He said, wolves will come in. Now, folks, some of you have... Anybody ever seen a real wolf? Anybody anybody ever seen a real wolf? You know, real wolf. My first impression, the first time I ever saw a real wolf, was how big he was. I mean, you talk about a German shepherd... German Shepherd looks like a chihuahua compared to a wolf. I mean, a real wolf. I mean, you hear about a pack of wolf. Wolves get after you, you know. And I, I used to think in my youth and in my vigor when I was indestructible, a pack of wolves couldn't kill me. I'd, I'd, I'd get me a stick and beat them off. First time I ever saw a real wolf, I said, you mean eight of those are coming after me? Where's a tree I can climb? A wolf is used in the Bible as a symbol of danger because it was so dangerous. A wolf is not only ferocious and big, but it's smart. And not only is it smart, but it works with other wolves who are just as ferocious and just as big and just as smart as he or she is. So a wolf is very dangerous. And Paul is speaking spiritually... He says, listen, beware of spiritual wolves which will come after you. Now, what's a spiritual wolf? It can be many things. It can be a false doctrine, something that someone whispers in your ear that causes you to doubt Scripture. It can be a hidden sin that you allow to fester. It can be a a little bit of pride and rebellion in your heart that says, well... Uh, you know, some folks may need to follow, follow that instruction, but not me. You know, I'm, I'm kind of above that. I'm more spiritual. You know, I, 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 don't, I don't need to follow that instruction. That's a wolf. A wolf that comes at you and says, tries to separate you from the shepherd and from the flock. That is a wolf, because that is when a wolf is dangerous. That's the first thing wolves do, by the way. They separate their prey from the rest of the flock. Listen, God wants you to be part of the body of Christ. No church is perfect. No preacher is perfect. But if you want to follow Christ, you need to be part of the body. You need to be in the body, part of the body, worshiping with the body. So the wolves, you are not easy prey For the wolves. So in order to fight those wolves, we need some armor. And we need to be fit for battle. In Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10, Paul begins to close this letter to the Ephesian church with a call to arms, a call to warfare. He says, Finally, brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. 
Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand therefore, and here's a good little project for you, Go through this passage and write down every time it says stand. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Well... Here we are, eight years, ten years into the life of this church, and they get this beautiful letter from Paul. But it's not just a beautiful letter, it is a call to action. A call to warning, a call to arms, to put on the armor of God, to fight against the wiles of the devil. Well, then there's another book in Scripture about the church at Ephesus, and that's 1 Timothy. Notice in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, he says, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes, rather than godly edification, which is in the faith. So, Paul there has left Timothy to pastor the church at Ephesus. And he wrote this letter to Timothy probably about A.D. 62 to A.D. 64. So we're 12 years now into the life of the church at Ephesus. Young Timothy is now the pastor at the church at Ephesus. And if you read 1 Timothy, and we're not, we don't have time to go all into 1 Timothy, but, but you are familiar with it perhaps. It gives instructions on what kind of leaders to have in the church. It gives instructions on on how men and women are to conduct themselves in the church. Paul is telling Timothy how the church should function and how he should function as the leader of the church. So you started out with Paul breaking the fallow ground in A.D. 52, spreading the gospel in Ephesus. And and then Paul went and pastored there for three years from from 54 to 56. And and then he stopped back by in 57 and and met with the elders and and gave them kind of a final boost of encouragement. Then he wrote them a letter, probably about A.D. 60, 62, encouraging them. And, And then he wrote to their pastor a year or two later, young Timothy, and he gave him encouragement, he gave him instruction. And then the Bible goes silent on the church at Ephesus. And remember I said 44 years. I started with 1974. Well, approximately 44 years after the gospel was first first preached in Ephesus in approximately A.D. 52, we go over to Revelation chapter 2, verse number 1. The time is probably somewhere around A.D. 96. And here we have... 
the old Apostle John. And by the way, although we don't have any Scripture to back this up, church tradition tells us that Ephesus had one more great, great man of faith who spent his last days there, and that was John. Tradition tells us that the Apostle John spent his last days preaching and teaching there in the church at Ephesus. And while he's on the exile to the Isle of Patmos by Rome, he has this vision. And he begins to write down the vision. And you know, the Lord sends messages to seven churches in Asia Minor. And the first letter is to the church I called the first church. One of the primary churches of the ancient world, the church at Ephesus. The very first letter of those seven letters is to the church at Ephesus. So how is the church faring 44 years later? Paul's dead and gone now, beheaded in Rome. He's gone on to his reward. All the apostles are gone now except young John who was just probably a teenager when he followed Jesus. And he's still living, the last of the apostles. And he's exiled to an island all by himself. The church at Ephesus has none of the original Apostles, not Timothy. We don't know where Timothy is. All of them are gone now. How's it doing? You you ever thought about some of the old saints that you know, say, from this church, or from the church that you grew up up in maybe as a child? Have you ever wondered what they might say? "How's How's the church going? How's things going? Is the gospel still being preached? Are people still listening? Our lives still being changed. And there's one that knows, and that's the head of the church, Jesus. I'm sure Paul wondered how things were in Ephesus, but Jesus knew. And Jesus sent a letter to the church at Ephesus, and we're going to close with this. What did He say? To the angel of the church of Ephesus, write, These things says He that holds the seven stars in His right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. And here it comes. The report card after 44 years to the church at Ephesus. I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars, and you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. So far, so good. I'm feeling pretty good if I'm a member at Ephesus. And boy, he's come out with that. That's good. We are hard workers. We are true to true doctrine. And and we don't have false doctrine here. And and, and yes, I'm... Thank you, Lord. Nevertheless, verse 4. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore... From where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. won't spend any time on that other than to say that what we know about the Nicolaitans from uh, church fathers who wrote about them was that they were people who had been in the church And then they apostatized and they came back to the church and said, Hey, here's the deal. You can be a Christian and live like the world, is basically what they taught. They said, Come on back to the temple. You know, join us in our our, our frolics with the prostitutes at the temple. It's just your earthly body. It's passing away. 
And they argued with them that, hey, you can live any way you want as long as you've you know, got Jesus and you confess the right things. It's all okay. It's okay. And Paul, the Lord Jesus says, You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him that overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Forty-four years later, outwardly the church was doing great, hard workers, good doctrine. They had, had found out people who were teaching false and didn't tolerate it. But he says, there's something so very wrong with you that if you don't change it, you're going to lose your church in spite of all the good things that you have. And that is you've left your first love. You've left your first love. You, you know, me and Lloyd, we joke around a lot. Do that to keep from arguing, you know, a lot of times. Better to laugh and cry. But, uh, you know, I was talking to someone the other day. And I thought, you know, if something were to happen to Loy, sure, I'm, I, you know, I, I, Loy always said, if something happened to me, you'll have another woman in here in six months. I said, if not six months, maybe eight, but, 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 not, <laughs> but not six. But, you know, j- j- just joking around like that. But I get to thinking about, if something happened to Loy, I think all the things that I would lose. I mean, first time I came here, I was 19 in that old building, January of 83. And, and she brought me here. You know, we were dating in college. I was a 19-year-old college student. I think about all the things we've experienced together. All the things that nobody knows but me and her, and we have sworn each other to secrecy that we will take those secrets to our grave and never tell. You and your spouse got some things like that? You've been together a long time? You you better never tell anybody that. Never. And there are things that only she and I will know that we'll take to our grave. Sure, maybe I could have or she could have another relationship, but I would have left my first love. There'd be so many things that I could never recreate, could not be recreated with anybody, anywhere, anytime. And here, Paul is saying to this church, or Jesus is saying, I'm sorry, Jesus is saying to the church at Ephesus, you've left your first love. And I think what that means, theologians argue about what does it mean. i tell you what I believe it means. It simply means what it says. They left their first love. They had came to Jesus not knowing a whole lot, but loving Jesus 44 years ago. They were willing to burn books and confess sin publicly. And, and, and I mean, all the stops were pulled out. It was full speed ahead. Don't look back. And I think Jesus looks at that church 44 years later. And he says, I don't see that anymore. I don't see that passionate, no-holds-barred, pedal-to-the-metal, I'm ready to go wherever He leads, I'll go. I don't see that. Well, I see good doctrine. I see hard work. I see many wonderful things that you're doing. But purity is not a substitute for passion. Purity is not a substitute for passion. You must have a passionate love for me, Jesus said. Without it, you're going to lose your church. Forty-four years is a long time. I don't know how long it took the church at Ephesus. You could look back at church history. There were several hundred years the church at Ephesus was a strong place. Councils were held at Ephesus. Things happened there. I will tell you today, you go to the city of Ephesus. It's not called Ephesus anymore. It's a city in Turkey. From what I've read, I've not been there, but from what I read, there's 
one small body of believers in that church. It's, of course, in modern-day Turkey, predominantly 99% Muslim. Very small handful of believers. No great ministry there any longer. What happened? Many things happened, but I would tell you one of the things that I think the greatest danger to any church or to any Christian is to leave your first passion, to leave your first love. I don't care how much you know about the Bible. I don't care how pure you live. I don't care all the things you can brag about. If you don't love Jesus and you're not sold out to Jesus, then my friend, that is the most important. Because my friend, if you're sold out to Jesus, if you love Him, He's going to straighten up anything that's not right in your life. But your willpower can only take you so far. If all your focus is, you know, I'm going to just not do bad things. You're not that strong. You are not that strong. Keep your first love, spiritually speaking. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for allowing us to look back 2,000 years ago to a group of believers in the ancient city of Ephesus who just like us heard the gospel. Their heart was stirred. They were drawn and and they yielded their life to Jesus Christ, giving all they knew about themselves to all they knew about Jesus at that very moment. And Lord, You filled them with Your Spirit and You gave them a mission. And Lord, they lived and served You for many, many years. And God, I pray that You would help us in our age, our time that we have been given to walk this earth, God, You would help us not to lose our first love, that passion for You that first drew us into a walk with Christ. Let us never lose it. Make it new every morning and every day. For that and only that will help us walk the narrow way. Not our willpower, not others, not rules, not regulations. Only the Spirit and the love of God will keep us on the straight and narrow. I pray, God, fill me with your spirit and your love. Fill every person here with your spirit and your love. And let us be faithful till you call us home. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we stand and sing...